You're listening to AshCast, the podcast of the Ash Center for Democratic Governance and Innovation at Harvard Kennedy School. The institutional protocols, practices, precedents have definitely been destroyed by Xi Jinping. And I think that's very dangerous. I think it does make a power struggle more likely, you know, a really destructive power struggle more likely. There's no sign of a rival to Xi Jinping now, anti-corruption campaign. Thank you so much for joining us this evening or afternoon or morning, depending, I suppose, on your location. I'm delighted that you're with us. My name is Fred Logeval, and I'm on the faculty here at Harvard Kennedy School. I'm the Lawrence Belfort Professor of International Affairs. I'm also a member of the History Department in Harvard College, and I'm honored to have this opportunity to welcome all of you. Um, just a few announcements before we begin. First, the Ash Center would like to acknowledge the land on which Harvard sits as the traditional territory of the Massachusetts people and a place which has long served as a site of meeting and exchange among nations. We also wanna acknowledge the co-sponsors for today's talk, along with the Ash Center. Today's event is being hosted, uh, co-hosted, I guess you'd say, by, by the Belfer Center for Science and International Affairs here at, here at H, uh, HKS. And just a few words now from me uh, about the lecture, and then of course I want to introduce uh, our speaker and our moderator. Um, the S.T. Lee Lecture focuses on military history and how it might shape global approaches to policymaking. The lecture also reflects Leng, Lee Seng Ti's dedication to providing a platform for scholars and policymakers to address critical international issues. Lee Seng Ti is recognized internationally, globally, as a successful business ex executive, um, philanthropist, as a patron of the arts, and we're grateful for the support. The distinguished lecturer this year, the S.T. Lee Lecture, is being given by our, our guests this evening, Susan Shirk, who is research professor and chair of the 21st Century China Center at the University of California at San Diego. She is one of the most influential, influential experts working on US-China relations and Chinese politics. Her book, Professor Shirk's book, China, Fragile Superpower, helped frame the policy debate on China in the US and other countries. It's not a bad thing to have one's book frame the debate on any topic but especially one I think that is of such international uh, consequence. Her current project is Overreach, how China's domestic politics derailed its peaceful rise. And her articles have appeared in leading academic publications, far too numerous to list, in the fields of political science, international relations, China studies, and uh, as you can imagine, therefore, her views on a range of issues pertaining to Chinese politics are highly sought. Our moderator uh, is my good uh, colleague, Tony Sage, who is the director of the Ash Center for Democratic Governance and Innovation, and is the Daiwu Professor of International Affairs, International Affairs here at HKS, at the Harvard Kennedy School. Tony has published widely on the politics and, and history of contemporary China. Currently, he's examining various things. He's got a project uh, looking at survey data on citizen satisfaction in China. He's also exploring recent developments of the recent development of philanthropy and its social consequences. Tony's exciting new book about which we spoke a few minutes ago before we came on with you on the history of the CCP, which is titled From Rebel to Ruler, 100 Years of the Chinese Communist Party is forthcoming in just a few months timed perfectly with the 100th anniversary of the party's founding. It's coming, uh, coming out, I believe, with Harvard UP or with Belknap Press of uh, Harvard University Press. Um, and so with that, it's my pleasure to turn things over to Professor Sage. Thanks very much, Fred, uh, for that introduction. And also, I'm so excited that we've got Susan Shirk with us uh, to discuss some of these uh, issues uh, this evening. Um, 
Now, most of the attention in the policymaking circles in the US, of course, is focused on China's economic rise, its global impact through its trade, through its investment, with a particular focus on the Belt and Road Initiative. And Washington seems fixated on the question of how should that rise be dealt with? And we seem to have come to bipartisan agreement that China is now seen as the major strategic competitor to the US position globally and in terms of uh, international institutions, and indeed uh, even presents a military threat and challenge to uh, that uh, preeminence, perhaps even offering an alternative model for the economy and the politics. And so we see a lot of writing about how do we compete, where should we conflict, and where can we possibly cooperate? But I think what a lot of that thinking is missing is really what is happening within China and how will those developments within China impact on its uh, global approach. And that's why we're so lucky to have Susan with us this evening, because this is something she's thought about deeply. She's written about quite extensively how the framing of these issues and questions in China and the dynamics of Chinese politics affects its outbound uh, activities. So we're coming up to two big anniversaries. We've got the 100th anniversary of the founding of the Communist Party coming up shortly. But perhaps even more importantly, in 2022, we have the 20th Party Congress. Uh, 20th Party Congress is, of course, being an important Congress if one thinks back uh, to the Soviet Union. And on that, looking at it from outside, it looks as though Xi Jinping couldn't be in a better position. At the last Party Congress, he seemed to have strengthened his control within the party. There didn't seem to be any successor in sight. And in fact, that's something that Professor Shirk talked about in 2020. So perhaps we would just start with uh, what do you see and what do you might expect as we move towards that 20th Party Congress next year? Is Xi Jinping as secure and as strong a leader as he looks? Well, thank you very much, Tony, uh, for that question. I'll come back to it in a second. But first, I want to say that I'm so pleased and honored to have been asked to give the S.T. Lee Lecture at the Harvard Kennedy School Ash Center. And I want to thank you very much for the honor. Um, it's a, a great pleasure to be with you and to be introduced by my former UC colleague, Fred Logoval, um, as well. So um, your question about the 20th Party Congress. You know, just um, a year ago, or at least at the start of the COVID outbreak in China, uh, there was a tremendous upsurge of anger and resentment being expressed toward Xi Jinping and toward the Chinese Communist Party uh, because of the suppression of information, the censorship, uh, the security forces had prevented people in Wuhan and Hebei province from getting the information they needed to stay safe. And so at the start of the outbreak, there was a kind of online Tiananmen uh, mass incident, you might say, which spread beyond Hebei province to the whole country. Quite surprisingly, there was actually very little censorship in those early days. So everyone could see that their friends and neighbors and fellow students uh, shared their outrage as well as presumably their fear about the epidemic itself. And so it really looked like things were pretty dicey for Xi Jinping. He disappeared for a period of time. He, um, they delegated the job of leading the COVID task force, if you will, the leading small group to uh, Li Keqiang, the premier, Xi Jinping was not front and center. And there was even a lot of speculation that uh, other members of the party elite who already had a lot of 
um, reasons not to be that thrilled with Xi Jinping to feel quite um, dissatisfied with him. Uh, now we're also very dissatisfied at the way he was leading the response to COVID. But, and uh, anyway, there are a lot of details, strange things went on. He gave a speech and sort of appeared to say, well, I actually defensively was actually really in charge, even though nobody had seen him. It was published later, the, the account of that speech. So there was a lot of, um, a lot of us wondering whether or not this crisis was really uh, a challenge to Xi Jinping and perhaps even to party rule itself. Because I'm sure that you've heard from your Chinese uh, friends and colleagues, just as I have had, uh, they've said, well, Xi Jinping is in pretty solid shape. It's gonna take a huge crisis Something has to happen, some crisis to really create a threat to his continued rule. Well, talk about a crisis. This was a tremendous crisis. Um, but then once she uh, came out and seemed to take over, the, uh, they controlled the spread of the virus using all the capabilities of this strengthened party because of course she has worked very hard to strengthen the party and to have its uh, organizations go into society, every aspect of society, every residential area, every work unit, whatever. And so they use this strengthened party to control people's movements, they forcibly quarantined people who tested positive and uh, they managed to get control over the spread of the virus in a very remarkable way using also surveillance technologies, really all the tools, you might say all the tools of the Chinese Communist Party led police state um, worked very well to keep people safe. So in the end, people in China ended up being very satisfied with the job that Xi Jinping did and with the role of the party. And so ironically, it might be argued that COVID has smoothed Xi Jinping's uh, path to the third term that he expects to get at the 20th Party Congress because this third term is definitely controversial in China. There's evidence from surveys and uh, that the ordinary urban public as well as the elite is not very enthusiastic about throwing over, abolishing the, uh, the practice of having regular peaceful turnover of power at the top after two five-year terms. And uh, this was not easily achieved by the Chinese Communist Party. It was the first and only large communist country to have achieved a peaceful protocols of peaceful turnover. And so uh, it's, the third term is definitely a controversial issue. Yeah, there's, I mean, there's a number of interesting things amidst what you said there. I mean, in some ways, COVID was almost like a rerun on a much larger scale of what we saw with SARS in 2002, 2003, where uh, the same things happened. Uh, basically, there was a cover-up at the lower level, cover-up as it went up the system, and it was only once sort of social media really ran out of control that the leadership had to admit that something was going on. But then we see how that system kicks in in the way you're talking about maybe uh, strengthening Xi Jinping's uh, position by saying, well, all the success of this is, of course, uh, because of the party. And I thought what was fascinating this time with COVID was it kept stressing that those doctors and nurses were party members. 
So again, reinforcing this message, it's the party that's doing it for you. Yeah, and if I may just throw in um, a point about the party as that the heroism of party members, because they really did go to the front line. Um, They were mobilized to uh, do a lot of the paramedical work and the social support work. And so as a result, one of my Chinese political science colleagues has studied applications to the party. Applications to the party actually went up Mm. because the respect for being a party member went up uh, and they they're viewed as heroes. That's fascinating. Two other things occurred to me what you were talking about there. One is you talked about there's enough to be dissatisfied with Xi Jinping. And perhaps in a moment you could expand a little bit more on what might those people have been dissatisfied about with Xi Jinping. But the other related question is is this issue of succession. Um, You mentioned sort of peaceful transitions. I mean, there's only been really one in the history of the Chinese Communist Party. And I would say that wasn't with Xi Jinping. It was really with Hu Jintao, Wen Jiabao. And of course, uh, Xi Jinping, his ascendance to power was uh, had as a prelude, the whole issues around Bo Xilai, a potential rival, and uh, the whole unraveling of the, what was seen as the model in, in Chongqing. But do you think that, I mean, I'm sure from Xi Jinping's perspective, him having a third term is giving stability. I wonder though, is that true? Or is it really creating instability by essentially pushing a problematic succession further down the line? Well, you know, one of the greatest risks to the stability of Communist Party rule or any authoritarian uh, rule is preventing coups at the top and uh, splits, open splits in the leadership. And uh, I would argue that actually the turnover from Zhang to Hu and then Hu to Xi, that's, that's two actually, because Xi was even chosen in a straw poll. You know, they started twice, they've had straw polls before the Central Committee takes its formal vote to help shape the slate of nominees. Um, It's all secret. It's not, you know, it's not a real election in some sense, but it's kind of a popularity contest. And she apparently did quite well in that. And that's why he's the leader of China. But he now has decided that all voting, all elections, uh, are bad. <laughs> and so in before the 19th Party Congress, there was no straw poll to select the Standing Committee, the Politburo, the Politburo, the, the um, and instead they had this interview method where he just interviewed a lot of people and then trust me, you know, I did it right. Um, so it's, um, You know, I think the institutional protocols, practices, precedents have definitely been destroyed by Xi Jinping. And I think that's very dangerous. I think it does make a power struggle more likely, Mm. you know, a really destructive power struggle more likely. There's no sign of a... Um, rival to Xi Jinping now, who is, has stepped out of the woodwork and, you know, because it's too dangerous to do that. And also he's been pretty effective at trying to wipe out rivals through the anti-corruption campaign. But at some point there will, a power struggle is much more likely because of scrapping uh, the term limits Uh, for the top leadership position. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting that turnaround with Xi Jinping because uh, a couple of two or three party congresses before that, he actually turned out bottom in an opinion poll. That's right, that's right. 
becoming an alternate for the Central Committee. So he'd done something, obviously, <laughs> to turn things around. I mean, I'm also interested by what you say, because if I was, um, you know, someone in the Politburo at the moment, looking sort of up, you know, what are my chances of getting up there? Yeah. And it looks pretty much as though Xi Jinping wants to stay till 2035 with these plans he's putting forward, whether that's you know, directly in control or whether it's a Deng Xiaoping behind the scenes uh, issue. I would be pretty frustrated uh, that basically you're telling me my upward mobility there is gone. So perhaps, you know, maybe turning a little bit, you did mention um, people being dissatisfied with Xi Jinping. I know elsewhere you've talked about mistakes that you think he's made. Would, mm -hmm. would you like to elaborate just a little bit more on that for us? Well, I think, um, as you just said, the dissatisfaction comes from the fact that your career is no longer predictable and safe. For one thing, she may come in. It's not just that your chances of promotion mm. have been reduced. Let's say you're really an ambitious politician and uh, of the suitable age, and you've gotten up to central committee and even or Politburo level, you see that he's basically stopped all career mobility um, for someone like you. And even worse, he's uh, he could come at you any moment accusing you of corruption or some other crime because he feels that you are a threat to him. You know, the pressure to demonstrate loyalty in the Xi Jinping system is tremendous. Everybody mm. has to be out tie, they have to show their loyalty. And this creates a kind of bandwagon effect. Everybody has to try to read the cues on what does Xi Jinping actually want? What's he about to tell us the policy will be? And they try to get there earlier. I, th I argue that this contributes to overreach mm. because of this pressure of loyalty and the bandwagon effect. And, uh, you know, so the other politicians don't like this. I mean, they don't feel safe. Mm -hmm. Their whole uh, career and their, and their family's welfare could be wiped out in one stroke by Xi Jinping. And for quite a few politicians, that, that actually has happened. Yes, yeah, certainly. I mean... I mean, certainly the overreach goes well beyond that, doesn't it? I mean, both externally and internally, the, the concentration yeah. of power we're seeing. Well, yes. And then the, the whole question of information. Mm. So in this type of highly centralized system, uh, and because of the pressure to prove your loyalty, nobody really wants to tell Xi Jinping what is the potential or actual downside to decisions he's making? Mm. So he lives in an echo chamber of praise and, um, you know, and loyalty. So uh, he's not, I, I think he uh, may not be getting accurate information. For example, now, is he getting good information about the backlash to China's recent actions internationally. The wolf warrior diplomacy over vaccines, the, um, uh, the punishing of Australia for asking for international investigation of the origins of COVID, uh, the uh, Xinjiang, Hong Kong, the extreme kind of Beijing's takeover of Hong Kong, essentially. Is she getting accurate information about the price that China is paying in terms of its foreign relations and its international image as a responsible rising power? Uh, you know, I'm not sure. 
Yeah, of course, we've had our own experience of that with a recent president in the US who may not have been entirely well informed about global perceptions and others. Right. And a lot of pressure to prove loyalty. I mean, there were many times over the last four or five years in which I was horrified to see the American political system resembling the Chinese political system in that respect. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, just in the last week, we've seen countries representing about 50 percent of uh, global GDP all taking actions uh, that can be considered negative to China, Australia dropping the Belt and Road Initiative, Um, the US, uh, of course, uh, signing on for this new strategic competition report, Uh, Japan saying it's going to cooperate on 6G development, German IT law, um, which is effectively going to cut out Huawei from development there. So you're right. I mean, this big backlash is taking place, and one does wonder if that information is getting through to Xi Jinping. Yes, so the centralization of power, you know, quite predictably leads to this kind of echo chamber effect, which is really quite dangerous. Mm. And it's something that we should be factoring in when we think about how to deal with China now. Yeah, and I think this, um, you know, some of the important work you've done before I think has highlighted what previously been has, has been the adaptability and flexibility mm-hmm. of the Chinese system. You know, we were conditioned to think of Leninist systems really aren't flexible. And yet under Jiang Zemin and uh, Deng Xiaoping, we had the situation where um, a lot of local flexibility was allowed, a lot of adaptil- adaptability was allowed, private sector was allowed, to experiment more. And I think many of us felt that that rather than state intervention was what was driving uh, China forward in creating that more uh, vibrant environment. So is that a danger you now see with this centralization of authority under Xi Jinping? Well, yes, I, um, it's, uh, you know, there's this kind of uniformity. Everybody is supposed to follow the center's directive and the core leader and protecting the core leader is the key mission for every subordinate official. You know, it really is, you know, it's kind of Stalinist actually. Hmm. And it, even though she is very different than Mao Zedong. It has some similarities in terms of the extreme centralization of power and the necessity of demonstrating loyalty and this kind of uh, uniformity that we had under Mao as well. Yeah, I mean, as you suggested, it certainly is a pushback from where Uh, the Chinese elite leadership seemed to be going, which was more collective based, uh, which was in a sense kind of dividing the spoils between different groups within the elite. And much of that now seems to be undermined. Yes, so um, the project I'm doing now does look at the Hu Jintao era as well as the Xi Jinping era. And the Hu Jintao era of collective leadership was admirable in many ways. And one of the ways is that it uh, power was shared, patronage mm. was shared. Unfortunately, corruption was shared as well. <laughs> um, but in, uh, so people thought that Hu Jintao was a weak leader. They, there was a lot of criticism of uh, by intellectuals, other urban middle-class people of Hu Jintao, um, especially because of the corruption. But this collective leadership was a kind of oligarchic power-sharing system. And the overreaching that started in the mid-2000s, I mean, one of the strange paradoxes of the history of domestic politics and foreign policy in China over the last few decades is that 
there was a major inflection point around 2007, eight, nine, and it didn't happen because of Xi Jinping. So we can't blame all the overreaching or the problems on, on Xi Jinping. This mm. started under Hu Jintao. And why was that? Well, of course, part of it was global financial crisis, which led to a, uh, a call for a more robust Chinese role in the world from the public and from the elite. But even before then, what happened is you had in this oligarchy, you had a lot of different interest groups, bureaucratic interest groups, economic interest groups, kind of going their own way. And in order to maintain cohesion within the oligarchy, they made decisions by a kind of log rolling, which means that every one of the barons, every, every one of the Politburo members or standing committee members, he had, there was a division of responsibility and he ruled his domain without any question from the other oligarchs or from Hu Jintao for that matter. So each one of these sectors uh, or functions was being ruled quite independently. And there was absolutely no checks. Uh, and a lot of what they did say, for example, in the South China Sea, you had uh, all of these different um, maritime interest groups, as well as the PLA Navy, that saw that they could get more resources, bigger budgets, more bureaucratic heft by saying that they were going out to defend China's maritime and territorial claims in the Spratleys and the Paracels and the whole South China Sea. So um, that was how, because when the South China Sea more assertive behavior on China's part began around 2007, um, at, that, at that time, there wasn't a lot of pressure from popular nationalism over the South China Sea issue. The public was much more concerned about Japan or Taiwan than mm. they were about the South China Sea. But these interest groups ended up pumping up more of the nationalist attention, the attention and the emotion from the public over these issues. So um, the collective leadership had its own problems. Uh, overreach, corruption, uh, and as a result, at the 18th Party Congress, when Xi Jinping comes into office in 2012, you look at the work report that Hu Jintao gave, which is kind of the transition and uh, kind of elite consensus, and they're calling for stronger leadership. Mm. So there was dissatisfaction with the collective leadership, call for stronger leadership, but people were not reckoning that they were gonna get anything like Xi Jinping. No, I think uh, we all know that uh, that may have been true, but nobody expected it to be quite as tough as it was. And in some ways, I think, they felt self, uh, safe with Xi Jinping in, in some ways, not exactly lowest common denominator in terms of his strength, but that he, they thought he could appeal to various different groups within right. the party. That's right. And yeah, that pretty soon came apart. You know, and if I was Xi Jinping taking power in that situation, if I looked around, it looked a mess. You know, he felt that, yeah, this is weak. It's not really hard decision making. We've got the corruption. You know, we've got society running its own way. We've got local governments not obeying. So I'm going to pull this together. I want to open it up to the questions in a, in a moment. And you actually answered one of them, which was about the South China Seas. But I want to ask you an almost impossible question. If we don't have Xi Jinping, would it change? Because in terms of what you're talking about, there was an underlying sense of this is moving out of control. We want a strong leadership. So without Xi, would we get much of a different approach? Would we go back 
to that collective leadership that you talked about operating before? I think it would be very different. Hmm. I mean, I think that, you know, Hu Jintao also was kind of experimenting with intra-party democracy. Hmm. There were a lot of members of the elite and intellectuals who thought that if you make the party leader actually accountable to the party elite broadly defined, which really means the central committee, the several hundred people in the central committee. And of course, according to party rules, the central committee does elect the top leadership. So um, uh, of course they've never rejected the nominations from above in the China case ever, but it did happen in the Soviet Union mm. several times in the Khrushchev era and it's happened in Vietnam. So I think uh, a more institutionalized collective leadership with a leader with a little more oomph than Hu Jintao had, um, who gradually uh, takes steps to strengthen China's institutional uh, arrangements, including the legal system, which frankly has kind of gone backward. I mean, there've been, uh, during the 1990s, there was quite a bit of progress to strengthening the, the courts and the uh, professionalization of judges and things like that. Things have slowed down or gone backwards. Similarly with market reforms themselves pretty much stalled out and we have this more status system. You know, Xi Jinping appears to be ideologically committed to state-owned enterprises not because they're actually good for the Chinese economy, but he sees them as the base of Communist Party rule. But, you know, in a, if we had another leader, they might gradually um, uh, strengthen the private sector, really treat the private sector fairly for a change and reduce the uh, the role of the state sector. I mean, there's so many different uh, options that they would exercise a stronger leader, but one who is really accountable to the central committee might exercise greater restraint mm. in foreign policy and make wiser decisions. You know, but on the other hand, let's face it, Chinese nationalism and anti-foreign nationalism has really gotten very strong now. So yeah, one danger some... is, you know, that any leader will be tempted to play to that nationalist sentiment. Yeah, I think that's very true. And that relates to some of the questions we, we've had, which I want to come back to in a moment. You know, I thought what you said about the state-owned enterprises was interesting because I think it, I wonder whether it's just Xi Jinping or whether it reflects really what is a very powerful block within China. Because, you know, in the November 2013 uh, Central Plenum Resolution, it did talk about more uh, influence being given to market forces. And mm -hmm. the Premier certainly spoke up uh, on behalf of market forces. But I do think we missed something in it. I, I think we, we tend to want to look for what we want to see. And so I think we all sort of shot to this sort of comments about the market, so on and so forth. But actually in the documents, there is still um, strong sentiments towards the uh, position of the state on enterprises within the economy. And certainly, as you said, uh, what we've seen under Xi Jinping, not only domestically, but globally, uh, really relying on state on enterprises uh, to push forward the kinds of policies that uh, he wants to see. Um, so there are a number I of I don't like the party's bank, you know. I mean, you can, yeah. he can direct 
the state-owned enterprises to put resources behind all of his pet projects. And they can pay for the Winter Olympics as well, you know, apart from anything else. Um, I do want to give a chance to some of the questions that, that have been popping up. Some are uh, externally related, but there was one also related to a very important question about domestic developments, and that was the changing demographics in China. And the person questioned, you know, what is the impact of that? And most importantly, what would the impact uh, possibly have been of spending be for an aging population? Hmm. Well, uh, I think people are really quite concerned about that international business as well as Chinese policymakers because the ratio of the working age, what we call the dependency ratio increases, right? So yeah. we have a smaller proportion of the population of working age. That um, one consequence of that is that uh, wages do go up. There are actually shortages of labor. Um, and the countryside is, you know, the labor, maybe surplus labor or whatever, that's probably not the right term, but has pretty much left the countryside already. Uh, and then, especially with one-child families, people have to take care of the elderly population, uh, the state, uh, social security and pensions, not adequate, healthcare, it's a huge burden to the government. And, uh, and so, and of course, one solution to that, I mean, other countries like Japan or Korea are experiencing the same thing actually in a more acute form. And they face a lot of uh, tough decisions about, for example, allowing foreign labor to come in, immigration. So I think the demographic problems are really very acute in China. They're definitely coming down the road. Yeah, I mean, a number of the factors which really have contributed to China's extraordinary growth are fading away. And as right. you say, demographics is clearly one of them, which has turned more negative from the positive phase it was in. Right. And on the consumption side, of course, it's um, older people don't consume as much as younger people do. Yeah, that's true. So, and uh, China needs to make this shift to more consumption-led growth away from investment-led growth. True. Um, another question which we had relates, again, relating to um, external issues is the question of Taiwan. And why does it seem to be that uh, under Xi Jinping, this has become a, such a much more pressing issue than it had been perhaps previously. Well, one reason is because many people in China were justifying the idea of a third term or longer as this is how much time it's going to take Xi Jinping to reunify Taiwan. And so they kind of project this thinking onto Xi Jinping that he must be planning <clears throat> something really big to bring Taiwan back into the PRC during his legacy because, I mean, during his um, administration, because of course that would be such a great accomplishment for any Chinese leader to achieve that. Um, the, you know, and just China's military buildup, of course, gives it greater capabilities. The military balance across the Taiwan Strait uh, has changed. And I think in the United States, there's also a lot of discussion about would the United States really come and defend Taiwan or not? I mean, I think they would. And I think the people in Beijing believe that yes, America would. I hope they believe that. 
but there's a lot of discussion about do we need to strengthen deterrence in some way and how do we do that? Do we do it by hardening our commitment to Taiwan um, militarily? Or do we do it by elevating our treatment of Taiwan diplomatically? So there's a lot of debate. I think much of it is a kind of American debate, which isn't necessarily connected to a big increase in the risk of Xi Jinping actually attacking Taiwan. My own view is that there's a much greater risk of Beijing using economic coercion against Taiwan, which is what it's been doing with a lot of other countries, than there is the risk of an actual military attack on Taiwan. I mean, that would seem to make a lot of sense to me. I mean, uh, you know, the mainland can keep turning the screws on Taiwan, making it squeal more and more. Because clearly it's it's rhetoric of win-win, you know, come in with us and we'll all be better off hasn't worked. It didn't work in Hong Kong. And what has been happening in Hong Kong, of course, is going to make it even more difficult for people in Taiwan to really buy into that. Um, I want to just turn back again to a, a domestic issue before coming back to the international again. And that is inevitably the question of Xinjiang uh, came up in the... Uh, Q&A, and in the sense of what is the rationale for Xi Jinping with that, and what are the objectives, short and long term, if you have any thoughts on that? He just wants to get rid of what to him is a problem. Mm -hmm. But the way of doing it is creating a much bigger problem. Um, and... Um, you know, and there's just no sign of any sensible internal debate over the best approach to the Xinjiang issue inside China. And that's very disheartening. You know, so there's, um, it seems that, uh, that people have bought in to the idea that Xinjiang represents a serious terrorist threat, that these, the people living in Xinjiang are of course hostile to Beijing. Well, if they weren't before, they certainly are now, given the re-education camps and the um, extreme approach to trying to basically brainwash the people of Xinjiang to support the Chinese Communist Party. I mean, one of the most horrifying things to me is that it, it appears that Xi Jinping still believes in this Maoist idea that he can use re-education to wash people's brains and to make them loyal to him and to the Chinese Communist Party. So it's not just the re-education camps, it's sending people into families to have heart-to-heart -heart talks, talk them. These are all methods of trying to bring about ideological uh, support for the regime that were tried in the Mao era, tragically failed. Mm. So, um, and of course, it's just so extreme, you know, that, uh, but it's very, very difficult to see how the United States, even in conjunction with other countries, can really um, uh, pressure Xi and party leaders to reverse this because, and it looks like they have the Chinese public behind them. Mm. Yeah, I mean, that, it does raise a broader, a broader question about what can Washington do to change internal behaviors in right. China? And I think we have to be honest and recognize it's pretty limited in that sense about what one can do. 
I think the, that what is happening in Xinjiang now, in a way, uh, recognizes a failure of the the idea that somehow you can develop these problems away. That if you put more and more money into a place, it's going to be better, and everybody's going to join in uh, in celebration of the Communist Party. And it ignores questions of identity, of culture, and alternatives in that. But coming to, to the, obviously, there's a number of questions related to the US. One of your former students from 15 years ago, Alice Chang, has a question about whether you see potentially any role for the private sector in the US in terms of engaging China and building a more effective competitive partnership between the US and China? Well, I do certainly believe that civil society's ties with China are so important, um, as well as business ties. One thing that worries me about US policy now is that we may see a kind of split between international business and other groups in the United States because international business, you know, the interest in investing in China and doing business in China is kind of inelastic. You see this from Taiwan businessmen, you see it from American businessmen. I mean, people, there's, it's such a huge domestic market and uh, it's, it's still the consumer market, especially, is still growing pretty dramatically. So uh, people really want to get in there and do business and make money. That's mm -hmm. understandable. But meanwhile, there are a lot of other groups that find so many features of China today so reprehensible and we're busy sanctioning one thing or another. And it really, um, you know, it creates for a potential schism like that. But I'm a big believer in people to people diplomacy, obviously education, students, civil society groups, you know, uh, of course the Chinese have made it more difficult going right back to the NGO law of a few years ago. But my view is we just keep at it. We persist, you know, and uh, do what we can to maintain these ties between the two societies. Yeah, no, I mean, I think that's uh, absolutely right. I mean, I think this question of schism, you know, between business sectors in Washington is important. And I think in some ways you can say China's been quite smart in kind of dangling fruits in front of Wall sure. Street while this has been going on. And so for example, at a time when Jack Ma was making criticism of some of the uh, regulatory practices in China, in the same panels, you had people from investment, US and other investment communities praising China for what it was doing. Yeah, I'm sure you, like I have been to some of these big events in China with a lot of international business people. And it really is like Lord McCartney coming and <laughs> banging his head on the floor. <laughs> yeah. um, we're getting near the, near the time, but um, there is, there was many other questions, including, you know, the question of inequality, would that uh, impact on the legitimacy of the party? But inevitably, uh, maybe we can round off with that. Just some of your reflections on where you think we are with US-China relations and any possible uh, suggestions you might have uh, for developing policy over the near to medium term, which has come up in different ways in a number of the questions uh, in the Q&A area? Well, my own view is that the Trump administration approach, kind of sledgehammer approach of confronting China across the board, as far as I can tell, actually accomplished nothing. 
I don't see any respect in which China's behavior has been influenced positively by US actions. Uh, and when the Biden folks were campaigning, what they said they would do is to come in, identify priority issues of dispute with China. Uh, and ones where they thought that maybe uh, negotiation, smart use of carrots and sticks and communicating with them, talking clearly about what we'd like to see them do might actually succeed. And, you know, there are issues like Xinjiang and Hong Kong. It's hard for me to see any negotiation being successful on those issues. But there are a lot of other issues related to uh, the structural problems in the Chinese economy, the way they manage their economy, which results in unfair treatment of our firms and lack of market access, uh, conformity to international norms on how they manage their economy, et cetera. Uh, as well as things like journalist visas, student visas, other civil society issues, where I think we might be able to make some progress. So I'd say identify the priority issues, try to negotiate on them. And you know, to negotiate successfully, we also have to demonstrate that we have some goodwill here. Mm. And that if China were to actually moderate its behavior internationally or domestically or whatever we're talking about, that there would, that we would recognize it and we would reciprocate in some ways. So, uh, you know, if you frame everything as it's all about competition, strategic competition, and you uh, have a very ha heavy hand on the sanction side, but very little expression of goodwill, including so far, as far as I can tell, none of the unwise um, uh, actions of the Trump administration have been lifted or reversed. Mm. They're all still there. Mm -hmm. So in my view, we need to get a little bit of positive momentum going at the same time as we uh, reverse this misperception that the U.S. is on the decline. And the Biden administration has been great on that, you know, getting back with our allies, joining international organizations again, and uh investing in ourselves. First of all, addressing COVID, uh, infrastructure investment, the large recovery bill, all of these things are very important. But at the same time, I think we could, it's time to start actually trying to resolve some of our differences with China through negotiation. Yeah, I mean, certainly the, the maintenance of sanctions, uh, saying it gives some kinds of leverage, seems somewhat uh, crazy, given that uh, there's no real evidence has ever been produced that uh, China has suffered from that, yet we know there's been adverse consequences for the US. So yeah, seems keeping something like that on is really only damaging US own interests. Um, so I'm very sorry. I mean, I could keep talking about this all night, but... Uh, we are out of time, and I know people uh, do suffer from Zoom fatigue, but this has been a wonderful uh, conversation, Susan. I want to thank you so much uh, for agreeing to take on this uh, ST Lee lecture, especially in this sort of virtual form. And I think it's been an extraordinarily informative discussion, and I truly hope that uh, in the not-too-distant future, maybe we'll be able to have you up here uh, in person. So thank you again, Susan, and I want to thank everybody uh, who uh, put this uh, event together.
So thank Thanks you. So much. Thank you so much. I really enjoyed the conversation and great questions as well. You've been listening to AshCast, the Ash Center for Democratic Governance and Innovations podcast. If you'd like to learn more, please visit ash.harvard.edu or follow the Ash Center on social media at Harvard Ash.